As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we look at your word this morning that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us, you would encourage us to praise your name. Amen. Please sit down. Well, the title for this uh, morning's sermon is Guard the Deposit. Guard the Deposit. And it's the second in our series of sermons in 1 Timothy this year. I don't know how many of you were here last Sunday, but last Sunday Mark brought us the message and warning that there would be difficult teaching ahead and the need for all Christians to live under the authority of the Word of God as given in the Bible. But Mark also stated that God's priority in this letter of 1 Timothy is to show his love, the love of Jesus, as he died for mankind on the cross. The love that will motivate church discipline and underlines the gospel message. And so in this, Timothy's, right, in this letter to Timothy, it's a pastoral letter to a young leader of the church at Ephesus. And it's a letter in which Paul warns Timothy of problems that the church faces, but also encourages him in his work. And so as we go into 2012, we're in the second week of it, let's encourage one another here in our church at Trinity in discipleship. Let's encourage one another in the work of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in whatever form that will take. But we might well want to ask ourselves a question this morning. What was this church at Ephesus like that Paul was writing to Timothy about? Because if we know something about what the church was like, we are likely to understand more about what he's actually saying. So if I could have uh, the first slide, please. Because we can find out in other parts of the Bible something about this church at Ephesus. And I've chosen Revelation 2. You don't need to look it up because it's there on the screen for you. In which the uh, Apostle John writes about the church at Ephesus. And he says this. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write... These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and you have not grown weary. Great encouragement here, isn't there, for this church at Ephesus. The hard work, the perseverance, the testing of wicked people. But there's also a grave warning, because he goes on. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's a warning here. John writes that these Christians at Ephesus have lost their first love of Christ. 
They've lost the centrality of love in the gospel of Christ. And therefore, they have fallen as a church. Well, as we consider the year ahead of us, both individually and corporately as a family of God's people here together, what do we hope for the future? Did you make any New Year's resolution? Well, if you listen to the politicians and the economists, there only appears to be doom and gloom. If you listen to the Canary supporters, there is some hope for the city. Another great win yesterday. (laughs) None of us knows what the future will bring, whether that be in health, wealth, or in the life of the church. But as followers of Jesus, we need to turn our hearts and minds to God's message of the gospel of Christ's forgiveness and love and not to the world's message. And so I believe that we have a message from 1 Timothy that we can take on board if we are to guard the deposit and avoid the situation of forsaking the first love of Christ that the Christians at Ephesus were in. Now, of course, for many of us here this morning, we have been followers of Jesus for many years. So how is our first love of Christ? How is love a central part of our life? Well, it's a difficult question, isn't it? Are we following Jesus the way we were at the beginning of our Christian lives? Are we guarding the deposit of the gospel of love? Well, you may well say to me, Nigel, what has this got to do with this first reading in 1 Timothy this morning? Well, I believe that Paul sets out to encourage this young leader, Timothy, and he gives us clues on how Timothy can guard his faith, which we can apply to ourselves. So if you like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you'll find it on page 1191. How can we guard the deposit and keep the love of the gospel of Christ alive? Guarding the deposit. Well, firstly, I think we can do it by putting God and Christ right at the centre of our lives. Look at this first chapter. First verse. Paul states, It is Christ who has given him strength and called him to service. The emphasis on Christ and the emphasis on God, which is seen also in verse 17, the only God. Paul puts God right at the centre. It is God who has called him. It is God who has given him grace. It is God who has poured out his love on him. It is God who is only worthy of praise and honour. And so we see here, right at the beginning of the letter, Paul is confident in God's calling and showing Timothy how God is the most important entity in his life. Now for us, at the beginning of the year, can we say the same as Paul did? Has God called us? Has God loved us? Has God given us the strength to follow and serve him? And has this led us to put God into that rightful place of worship in our individual lives and in our church life together. If our faith is challenged this year within our country and our church, and it probably will be, let us retain the centrality of Christ and God's love 
as we seek to understand the attacks and perceive God's way for us to follow. Paul would suggest to us that if we are to retain this first love that, is, that was spoken of in Revelation, God will need to be in the correct position in our personal and corporate lives together. That is, he will need to be central. If we haven't got God in that correct position in our lives, it may be time at the beginning of this year to come to confession and penitence so that we start the year correctly. But we can encourage one another in this, can't we? By praying together, by studying God's word together, whether that be in small groups during the week or centrally here in church. Maybe we can take the opportunity that we've already heard of to participate in one of those new courses being offered in, a, in three weeks' time so that we're putting God at the centre of our lives. Secondly, if we are to retain this first love through this year and guard the deposit of the gospel, we will need to remember the condition in which Jesus brings us hope. The great message of the Bible through both Testaments is of mankind's moral condition with regards to their relationship with the Holy God. We learn from the early passages in the Bible how mankind fell from grace, how mankind pursued their own ways rather than God's ways, what in theological terms is called sin. And this is the fundamental condition of mankind that Christ came to bring hope to. It is this condition that society has always tried to avoid and object to. I was listening over the holiday period to Terry Wogan on Desert Island Discs. Uh, I don't know if you ever hear that program. It's a great program. And uh, he was asked by the interviewer about his family's Catholic faith. He acknowledged, yes, it is true, we are Catholics but he stated that he'd always had problems with believing in the concept of mankind being born into sin that comes from the Old Testament, what's often called original sin. But the gospel is that uh, the fundamental gospel message, which is at the heart of the Christian faith, is that mankind is born into sin and so separated from God by this sin. And it's this proposition that creates most opposition amongst people today and always has done. Yet here we see that Paul in this passage addresses this issue. We read in verse 13 that Paul declares that he was the worst of sinners. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, an unbeliever. Paul doesn't forget that he was a terrible sinner, but he also remembers that he was a forgiven sinner showing mercy and showing shown mercy and God's grace and God's love poured out on him other notable christians down through the ages have stated the same thing think of john newton that slave trader charles wesley they all stated that they were terrible sinners before god so if we're trying to maintain this first love of christ it's important to remember that we are sinners before God for, for, the, for the following reasons. I found four reasons in this passage why we should remember that we are sinners. First one. The first one is this. 
The memory of sin is very necessity in keeping the love of Christ alive because it keeps us from spiritual pride. John Newton, that slave trader and hymn writer, wrote his own epitaph to go on his gravestone. John Newton Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith he had so long laboured to destroy. John Newton never forgot he was a forgiven sinner and neither did Paul. And although we won't live lives like Paul or John Newton or Charles Wesley, nor must we forget that we are sinners because it saves us from spiritual pride. Secondly, the memory of sin keeps us grateful. The memory of sin keeps us grateful. Hear what the Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote to his son. He said this, When I was threatening to become cold in my ministry and my heart not filled with the amazement at the grace of God, do you know what I used to do? I used to take a turn up and down amongst the sins of my past life. And I always came down again with a broken and contrite heart, always ready to preach as it was preached in the beginning, the forgiveness of sins. For all of us, when we remember how we've hurt God and we've hurt those that love us and our fellow men, and we remember how God has forgiven us, that memory must awake flames of gratitude within our heart. It does a man good to remember his sin because it keeps his gratitude alive. But thirdly, the memory of sin keeps us going on to greater effort to follow Jesus, to spread the love of Jesus and the good news. Because when we love someone, we want to show that love through practical actions. And so we do things for those that we love. And the love we feel for Jesus, because he died to take our sins away, surely will spur us on to service. Not that we can earn salvation, but that we can show gratitude for it and follow the command to go and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples of all mankind. And so, in our church, as we plan for spreading the gospel in Norwich this year, which will involve hard work, it will involve hard work, but we can be urged on and encouraged by the fact that our sins have been forgiven and paid for by the death of Jesus on the cross. And then lastly and fourthly, why should we remember sin? Well, we read in verse 15 and 16 how the memory of sin for Paul was also a way of encouraging others. The mercy of God, the forgiveness of Paul's sin, showed God's patience, showed God's mercy, showed God's love and the gift of eternal life. And he says, this should encourage others. He states, if God can forgive me of my sin, of all the dreadful things I have done against God's people, how much more can God forgive you? So be encouraged. That was Paul's message to Timothy. Be encouraged. Paul was not brooding unhealthily over his sin 
but it was that he remembered it so that he could rejoice in the wonder of the grace of Jesus' forgiveness. Now, you may well have experienced hearing testimony of modern-day people who proclaim the saving grace of God, how their lives have been turned around by God. The Alpha newspaper, which comes out on a regular basis, always has accounts of people whose lives have been turned around by God's forgiving of their sin. Here's just one example that came out relatively recently. It was titled, The UK's Most Dangerous Man Turns Towards Jesus. This man, whose name was Shane Taylor, was interviewed by Nicky Gumbel uh, in, in the paper. And he says this, Shane Taylor, who attacked two prison officers while serving a sentence for attempted murder, spoke of how he was held in a solitary cell and fed through a locked hatch in the door. Four to six armed officers wearing riot gear had to be present if the cell door was ever opened. He described how his life was filled with anger and had no respect for authority. He said, I didn't care if I stayed in prison forever. Consider the sixth most dangerous man in the prison system, he went on an alpha course in prison five years ago, during which he gave his life to Jesus Christ. His life was totally changed from then on. He said, the prison officers who'd been my enemies suddenly became my friends. I suddenly started to love people. He was released a year later and has not reoffended. He has since married and has two young children. And he finished the article by saying, I go everywhere preaching now, he said. I just want to tell everyone what God has done for me. Sharing our life stories of how God's love has changed our lives is one of the strongest methods of witness to others, to non-believers. We need, don't we, this year, to encourage the sharing of testimony with one another because it will encourage praise and worship of God in our hearts and minds. It will show others how God's love can bring people back to him. Your witness to your friends and colleagues at work, how God has saved you from sinful action and given you the hope and gift of eternal life. So as we go through 2012, let's encourage each other in sharing in the witness of God's love for us. So there we have it. Four reasons for remembering our sins being forgiven by Christ. It keeps us from spiritual pride. It keeps us grateful, it urges us on to service, and it encourages others. So how then can I conclude this morning? Well, in this letter and first chapter, Paul is setting out to encourage his younger brother Timothy in his calling to lead the church at Ephesus. Later on in verses 18 and 19, we read how Timothy is to fight the good fight, to keep on going. But Paul lays down the basis for this, to remember the gospel of love and the death of Jesus in the foundation for this. Look at verse 15, if you want to be encouraged by this. Look what he writes here. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. It's the foundation that Timothy 
and we must preserve and guard at all costs. And so what are we called to guard this year in 2012? Well, surely that Christ came into the world to save sinners, which will lead to the praise and honour of God. Look at verse 17, how Paul finishes off this passage as a theme of glory and honour to God. And we can have the confidence that this will come about if we keep at the centre of all our actions that Christ came to save sinners. So as we go through our church life together this year, as we work with the young people, the children, the middle-aged, the men, the women, the senior citizens, with those in the surrounding streets of our parish, with those that play football on the Jenny Lind on a Thursday night, with those that we meet at work, we can be sure that we can offer the, the saving grace of Jesus to them we can witness to this fact and we can rejoice together that we, we have the gift of eternal life if we retain that first love of Jesus because he died on the cross to take the punishment of our sins. Remember, all we have to do is to confess that we have sinned and ask for forgiveness, believing that Jesus' death accomplished this for all of mankind. So let's just remember as we sit in silence for a few seconds together that wonderful message of love that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Amen.